Hi, everyone, and welcome to SACSA's new podcast, To Practice, a practitioner skill building process for the field from two folks who don't know it all, but have and will continue to think a lot about it. Hi, everyone. My name is Masaret. I am an associate vice president here at James Madison University in the um, surprisingly temperate June weather, um, and I'm excited to be here. Awesome. And my name is Kate Radford. I serve as the director for leadership education and development in the Center for Student Leadership and Engagement at Clemson University um, in the not so temperate Clemson, South Carolina. It is very hot here um, and like muggy and rainy. And anyway, your mountain life sounds delightful, Miles. It's 55 degrees here last night. 55. Yeah, I can't relate. Cannot relate to that. Um, well, we're glad that y'all are with us just to catch up a, a bit in case you missed our first season. Miles and I used to work together here at Clemson, um, and as context, our office at the time was about half graduate students. And through the years, we've reflected a lot on the training that is provided to our amazing grad students and came to what is probably a fairly obvious realization that we were the host for the practical experience for students and bore a great deal of responsibility for helping to develop practical skills. So this podcast is born of that realization. Um, since that time, we spent a lot of time talking about and thinking through the practical skills that we believe are necessary to thrive in student affairs. And this podcast, podcast is for us to share those reflections, to continue to hone our own skills as practitioners, and to give us a chance to sit down and talk to each other and stay in conversation now that we don't work together anymore. All righty. So this season, we're going to introduce a new segment. And we're actually going to sunset um, what I'm calling the hot goss from the Half Mile Lake Facebook group, um, which Kate discussed frequently last season. Um, like all Facebook groups, I think it's best to uh, leave behind and never think of again. So this new segment is called Pop Culture True or False. So um, I planned this. I, I plan to explain this here, and then I realized that the name is fairly self-explanatory. I like wrote a couple of sentences and was like, actually, it's just pop culture, true or false. Folks do understand that. So what may not be self-explanatory though, is that Kate is intentionally clueless about pop culture. Um, obstinately might be another word that you could use, uh, uh, obstinately clueless. So I can't wait to ask her several questions each episode. The theme this week is celebrity couples. So I oh am going to name a couple, I'm going to provide some explanation that to the listeners, I'm sure would be obvious to Kate, I'm sure is not obvious. And uh, to provide a little bit of context, and then Kate is going to tell me whether she thinks these people are actually dating or not. Kate, okay. are you ready? Do you understand the assignment? I, I understand the assignment. I'm very nervous because I really, I'm just afraid you're going to say names of people. I'm not even going to know who they are. So the context is going to be helpful because I am i got some catching up on pop culture to do, but I think this is going to get me there. So I'm ready. Let's do it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think, I, I think the catching up, you know, I think you not knowing is kind of the bit here, not to provide a, you know, a peek behind the curtain for everybody, but yeah. um, all, right. all right. All right. Here is our first uh, possible couple. All okay. right. So uh, star of the HBO show euphoria and general ingenue Zendaya is it true that she is dating current Spider-Man and former Kinky Boots star Tom Holland? Yikes. Um, 
Well, I have a couple of thoughts about that. Number one, did not know there was a, I don't, I didn't know there was a new current Spider-Man. So let's just begin there. Um, <laughs> I don't really know who I thought the current Spider-Man was the person. Uh, yeah. I'm not even going to say who's coming to mind as the most recent Spider-Man that I am aware of. Um, so let's begin with that. I would like to believe that you're starting me off on like a, I don't know, a positive note, trying to really like throw me a, um, an easy one. And so I'm going to assume that, yes, this is true. These people sound, it sounds possible to me. Sure. Yes. True. All right. That is correct. Zendaya and Tom Holland, at least as of this, as of this recording, our dating, I did just realize that given we uh, have a little bit of a lag on release that folks could break up and that would be, Gosh. that would be tough. But I think um, from my understanding, Zendaya and Tom Holland recently um, may have purchased a home and moved in together. So pretty, pretty serious oh. stuff. Um, I didn't think about the fact that, you know, I feel a little responsibility. Like we could be responsible for them breaking up by talking about, you know, like we put bad stuff out into the, into the atmosphere. We could. Yeah. I'm not going to bear that responsibility. I don't even know who Tom Holland is. So there's no way he knows who this, who I am and I can't be responsible for his relationships. So, okay. Moving okay, on. What, what I think I'm going to do for each of these is start with just a quick check-in about whether you actually know who these human beings are. So let's just okay. circle back real quick. You do not know who Tom Holland is. Do you know who Zendaya is? Yeah. I think I can picture her. Mm -hmm. Okay. Okay. Great. Yeah. Mm -hmm. All right. Are you ready for your next one? I am. Okay. So is Post Malone noted tattooed yodeler slash rapper? Yeah, um, face tattoos, right? I can picture him too. Yeah, yeah okay. you got him. Okay, so mm -hmm. you know who that is. Yep. Is he dating, I don't know how active she is, but uh, actress, um, former Transformer star Megan Fox. Are Post Malone and Megan Fox dating? Do you know who Megan Fox is? I do. And I know the answer to this and it's no. And I know that because Megan Fox is dating another tattooed music person. I think I'm going to do better with musicians. It maybe, I don't know. Right. Machine Gun Kelly. She's dating Machine Gun Kelly. Whoa. Kate. Yes. I thought I was really going to get you with that. Yes. Wow. I got very wow. nervous because I definitely don't know who Post Malone is dating. If you had given me someone that I just didn't know was in another relationship, I would have not gotten that, but I got that one. I, so here's, here's something interesting about my lack of pop culture knowledge. I feel like I have a weird interest in certain pop culture and it's the Kardashians top that list for some reason. Mm -hmm. And so I think the Kardashian connection is what got me there. Mm-hmm. They're like friends. They double date. I've seen them on TV. Oh, do they? Mm -hmm. oh, okay. Interesting. One of them, Courtney, Courtney and Travis. Code it feels yeah. like Megan Fox could be like spiritually Kardashian. I agree. I agree. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. All okay. right. Um, so you're two for two. Yeah, Kate, you're doing really well. Yeah, this okay. is good. All right. Are you ready for the next one? Yes. I'm most optimistic about this last one. This one, um, yeah, we'll have to see. Okay. Um, okay. So Stranger Things star, uh, she's also in Enola Holmes. Her name is Millie Bobby Brown. Do you know who that is? Nope. Okay. She's very famous. Um, okay. <laughs> so is she or is she not dating 
a person named Jake Bon Jovi. I think that's how that's pronounced, but it could be pronounced Bon Jovi because Jake Bon Jovi is, I think, exclusively famous for being the child of uh, noted Jack and Diane singer, John Bon Jovi. So is Millie Bobby Brown English actress, uh, you know, I'd say current television star, future movie star, dating Jake Bon Jovi, we'll say, uh, son of John Bon Jovi. I mean, I have questions about whether Jake Bon Jovi is even a real person, which I feel like is where you're maybe going with, I don't know, maybe you're really trying to mess with me. He just sounds fake. I don't believe, no, I don't think that's a real couple. That's your final answer? Yeah. Okay, they are actually dating. Oh boy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, they're actually they're actually dating. Uh, last I saw, they were um, really canoodling at a Harry Styles concert. I think that was fairly recent. I know who Harry Styles is. Well, good. Yeah, yeah. I also know who Beyonce is, so thank you. Okay. Um, <clears throat> all right, you ready for your last one? I'm ready. Okay. Uh, Megan Rapino. Soccer. Super- Superstar soccer player. Yep. Won yeah. multiple World Cups with the U.S. Women's National Team. Yeah. Care for that. Locked horns with the former president of the United States publicly. Uh, yes. Icon. Icon. Yes. You know who that is? Very well aware. Yes. Okay, great. Is Megan Rapino dating WNBA star, one of the best women's basketball players of all time, Diana Taurasi? Um... I mean, it feels like some similar energy. Feels like they could make a good couple. Um, Do you know who Diana Taurasi is? I forgot to ask. No, I don't. I'm not really a big basketball fan, to be honest. Mm. Um, oof. I'm going to go with. Yeah. Yeah. Seems reasonable. Mm hmm. Okay, so again, spiritually right, factually wrong. So uh, Megan Rapinoe is actually dating who I believe is Diana Rossi's real life best friend, also WNBA star, also former UConn Husky, also one of the best women's basketball players of all time, but her name is Sue Bird. So that is who Megan Rapinoe is dating, perhaps engaged to. I'm I'm not sure about the status of that particular situation. So yeah, yeah. How do you feel after our first one? Two, two out of four. That's um, yeah. exactly how you would have done if you had just guessed um, true to all of them. So uh, that could be a strategy next week, next time, just to true everything. Um, you know, I feel good. I feel like I, I, I did better, maybe better than I expected. I feel like I knew some people that was helpful. I was really afraid you were just going to say names and I would have absolutely no context for who they even were. So yeah, I'm feeling good. I feel like I've learned some things. I feel like I'm going to be way more relevant in conversations with people about pop culture after this series. So, yeah, yeah. Listen, I, um, I both like that you didn't know whether Jake Bon Jovi is a real person. I didn't know he was a real person until I found out he was dating Millie Bobby Brown. And I also like that I still don't know how to pronounce his last name. So, um, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I definitely didn't realize that John Bon Jovi, that was like a legitimate name. I didn't know that either. Yeah. Yeah, that was that was news to me. Yeah, this is good. I am a person that 
sometimes we'll like to go down like a bit of a, a rabbit hole with looking on Wikipedia about people and stuff. And so this is like the kind of information that I like to get, you know, just like random tidbits about people. And so this is good. This is good. I'm very excited about it. Yeah. 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 Uh, well, good. I'm glad that that I'm glad that that worked out. Excited for next time. We'll go with a different theme the next time. Um, and I'll continue to surprise you about what the theme is, because I would hate that you would do any homework. I think that would really ruin the ruin the nature of this thing. So yeah. um, I have our student affairs shout out for us. Um, so just as a reminder, um, this is an idea that you can celebrate uh, someone that you uh, care about here in student affairs and the work that they're doing and uh, send it to us and we will read it here on the podcast. You can send it to me at uh, S-U-R-R-E-T-M-D at jmu.edu and I would be excited to share that. Um, and in keeping with our shared commitment to social justice in our work, we would ask that you make a donation to an agency working on the multitude of ways our society can become more just. Kate and I will each make donations for each shout out as well. This week's shout out is for uh, my colleague here at JMU, Danae Peterson, although uh, Danae is, um, although Kate has not met her, is someone who is tremendously um, supportive of this process. So uh, Danae is known for her competence and ability to keep hundreds of balls in the air at the same time. And that is true about her as a human, but she is also kind and a driver of equity on our campus and an amazing friend. And Danae's uh, a really, really key supporter of this podcast. So thanks, Danae. And in keeping with that, Danae is incredibly active at her church um, here in Harrisonburg. And so I'll be making a donation in support of the equity ministries at her church. Amazing. Thanks, Danae. She's a, yes, wonderful supporter of this podcast. We appreciate her a whole lot. So, and I look forward to one day meeting her in person. So. Well, um, we are really excited to jump into a new season here with you. Um, I didn't mention that in sort of our opening, but we um, talk about sort of these practical skills that we think are necessary to thrive in student affairs through a grouping of season and, and each of them are based around a specific skill. So we started this podcast talking about supervision um, and we're really excited to jump into this new season discussing institutional politics. So Miles, I'd love to get us started with this question. Why? <laughs> Why are we doing that? Why are we devoting this season of the podcast to the political aspects of our work? What are your thoughts on that? Well, I mean, I think that this is all based on the sort of fundamental assumption that there's a lot that to pack into graduate programs. The competencies that spread within this work are really, are really complicated in how we prepare people to go in student affairs work is a really complicated thing. And um, institutional politics are also something that are hard to, I think, learn about hypothetically. I think there's a lot of experiential learning based in it. And that's really what we're sharing from as our own experiences. Um, but also I happen to have done a dissertation that looked, you know, there and have uh, read in the process of doing that a lot of literature about things that people wanted more of after coming, at, after coming out of graduate programs or that new professionals wanted more preparation on. And a thing that shows up a ton is institutional politics. People, I think, feel unprepared for how to navigate the really complicated ecosystems that are college campuses. And I mean, that's really what the podcast is about, is a chance for folks to get skills that are necessary to practice within our field. So that's what we're going to talk about institutional politics. And I'm, I'm excited about it. 
Yeah. I was reflecting recently um, about sort of my, my role now and sort of my relationship with graduate students. So for the first time um, in a long time, I'm not directly supervising a graduate student. I'm supervising folks who are supervising graduate students and sort of thinking about what my relationship with our grad um, students in our office looks like. And I think so much of, because I see them less frequently, I'm less involved in their like day-to-day work. You know, I'm not really the person that's checking on their projects when we have one-on-ones. I get to have like, I don't know, at this point in my career, like more fun conversations, I think about sort of like what they're learning overall. And it's less about the day-to-day stuff than it was when I was directly supervising. Um, And I, I think this is like the common thread in my conversations with graduate students. I think you're like exactly right that it's, um, it's something that people want to talk a lot about that. they have a lot of questions about that. We're not necessarily getting, um, in graduate preparation programs. It's just impossible. There's too much to pack into, um, you know, two years or sometimes even a year program. Um, but yeah, I've had a, a lot of conversations in recent years with graduate students that are curious about and want to know more and, um, want to, kind of digest what they're seeing about institutional politics. And um, it does seem to be something that's really on people's minds. So totally agree with you there. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So Kate, how about, how about how you have sort of thought through that? So understanding that these are definitely coming up in conversations that you're having, but why do you think institutional politics are worth navigating for us? Yeah. I mean, I think first and foremost, it just underscores I don't know, everything is a big word or a a far reaching word, but I would dare to say everything that we do and the political nature of our work is, um, is what makes our work really complex in a lot of ways. I think there's a lot about our work that is, um, I don't know, that feels straightforward and feels like I can sort of get my arms around it and understand it. Um, institutional politics are the thing that I often feel like I, I don't have my arms around and I'm still, trying to figure out. Um, and it just, it shows up all the time. Um, I think, you know, relating back to those conversations I've had with graduate students recently, I think one of my key takeaways from those conversations and something that I've tried to sort of reflect back to graduate students and something that I certainly reflect for myself, um, is I think sometimes we try to be a little bit, um, too black and white with things. Like we are trying, we try to see things as not having a gray area, Um, which is funny to me because like, you know, there's a lot about, to be honest, student development theory that I don't remember because it was many years ago when I took that class. Um, and I, I don't regularly pick up my book and read it. Um, but one of like the things I really recall is, is learning about sort of, you know, ways of seeing the world and ways of thinking and, and the idea of, um, that we had this responsibility to help students to not be dualistic thinkers, (laughs) to help students to like think, um, about things in more complex ways. Um, and I think I really strive to do that for undergraduate students. It's part of like what I think is important in my work. And yet I think I find myself sometimes being a bit too dualistic and a little bit too, like, I just want to things to be black and white or, and I don't, um, always engage with the complexity in the way that I could. Um, I don't always recognize it or I don't interrogate it. Um, and I think that that's, that's an important piece um, of something that we have, we have to do better and we have to help prepare others to do better. Um, I also would say that I felt like by the end of season one <laughs> of our podcast, that I said the word relationship, I don't know, 6 billion times. Like, I feel like everything just kept coming back to relationships. It was such a central theme to our first season. Um, 
And I think at the end of the day that institutional politics is also about relationships. And so I like that there's sort of this thread between our first season and our second season, very different relationships, very different way of looking at those relationships. Um, but I think, you know, what is political about things is, is the way those relationships are leveraged and, and sort of the impact that they have and the power that they have. So I'm excited to kind of continue thinking through that in a second season. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's sort of the fundamental question. I think that dualism is a really interesting point because there is sort of this fundamental nature that, um, you know, like we can identify that like a person is struggling in their work, like they're not meeting expectations. Um, but I think sometimes we sit with it. It's like, okay, well, that person is bad at their job. But like that conclusion unto itself has some value. It's not that it doesn't. It can change how you rely on that person or what you can expect from them or, you know, there, there is some merit to that, but a much more uh, complex and I think um, instructive, particularly as we're thinking about learning who we want to be, but then also thinking about how we're operating in our current work is why. Mm. And I think that that's really what the nature of this conversation is, is, you know, like, why are institutions the way that they are? Why are people motivated the way that they are? How do we then subsequently navigate? How do we then subsequently navigate that? This is all about, you know, like, I think that people have this sort of, um, and I think it's important to sort of acknowledge that people have this kind of icky feeling about this concept about like, well, why would you have to navigate this? That's inherently disingenuous. And it's like, it's not, disingenuous to understand the way a place works yep. you know we're not advocating for manipulating people which i think is sometimes what people associate with this concept and, and we're not advocating for any one specific way of engaging in how you understand the way that a place works we're just having a conversation about it because it is more instructive for people to have that why and how conversation and not just the sort of dualistic conclusion of good or bad because sometimes also the good conclusion can be misleading you know yeah. you can enjoy someone they can be someone you enjoy working with but they may not be someone that you can rely upon and so both of those conclusions are are i think really relevant so. yeah all right kate so Thinking about, you can think about this as you're going to take a renewed view of um, politics in the place that you work. You can think about this as like you're starting off in a new place and you want to try to sort of diagnose the organization. What are the first steps to take in understanding the political landscape of a college campus? Yeah. Um, so my first thought with this, and, and I, I am thinking about it probably from entering a new space um, is that you have to take the time to observe, right? That you have to watch and form your own opinion. Um, we talked about this in season one about sort of the responsibility on the supervisor's end of not putting your own stuff on your people, right? Like when, when you're onboarding, I think that's where we talked about it, that you're not saying, you know, this person's frustrating and this person's hard to deal with. And this person is this and that, right. That you're not doing that as a supervisor, um, and I think as a employee, um, potentially a new employee at a new place, um, that you, that you have to do, you have to also be cautious on your end of, of watching and, and really trying hard to 
form your own opinion, not relying solely on the opinions of other people. Um, I say that with a caveat of, and I said that I, you know, approach this from thinking about going to a new place because I think it's really hard. I appreciate your question about like a renewed sense of this. I think it's, it's hard to do that. And it, when you've been in a place, it's hard to really, um, to reform an opinion or to look at um, something as a blank slate when it's not a blank slate. Um, I think you only get that opportunity sort of one time at a place to really have a, the, the blank slate going in of, okay, I have no formed opinions, no, um, baggage associated with this and to really observe and try to understand it, um, without sort of all that attached to it. But I would also say that, you know, your blank slate is not everyone's blank slate. Like you are going to come in with a, a blank slate about the campus and the people and the, and the politics, probably if you don't know it already from some other experience. Um, but that's not always going to be reciprocated. And, um, I think like it can be complicated, you know, who knows if you entered a job that, someone else applied for internally and didn't get right. Like there's the, you're, you're kind of, you can walk into some political stuff pretty immediately. Um, but I think as much as possible, trying to preserve that for yourself and, and to form your own opinion. Um, I think the ways that I would recommend trying to form your own opinion, um, are to like really paying attention in spaces that you're in, paying attention to who speaks, but also who you feel like is heard in spaces, um, paying attention to, um, you know, I think distinguishing between who is likable and who has political power, because I don't think that those are always the same. Um, I think you can like really like someone, but they don't have their, maybe people enjoy spending time with them. They're likable, but they are not the people that have the political power on the campus. And so I think paying attention to like why that is, um, or, um, uh, what that distinction is about. Um, and then I think the last thing I would say is like, be a part of contributing to a positive political environment, right? So I think you build trust by being trustworthy yourself. So I think as you're gathering information, um, not to get to get sucked in to some of the negativity, if you can help it, um, and to to be like sort of a force of of helping people to think things through things differently and and to be, yeah, to be trustworthy as you are entering into a new space. So um Miles, you like quite literally just, and not just in my mind, you've just left Clemson. You know, you've been at JMU now for a while, but as you entered a new campus or as you have entered other new campuses in the past, what, what has worked for you or what are some of the first steps that you take in understanding the political landscape of a place? Well, you know, I mean, every, every place is different. You know, I, I've worked at, um, I worked in an urban institution where the sort of interconnectedness outside of work was pretty minimal. You know, like there was a lot of people who just, you know, worked together and then got on the train and never thought about that person again. And then mm -hmm. there's other places, um, you know, small towns like Clemson or, you know, slightly bigger towns, but like Harrisonburg where interconnectedness is like uh, just a fact of life. Um, and so, I mean, I think an, an initial thing that you can look at, and again, it depends on the place and sometimes the stuff exists outside of it. But I think a really interesting question to try to figure out is who is friends with who? Um, and again, more likely to happen at a place where interconnectedness is sort of a necessity of life. Um, but it's a really interesting question. You know, there, there are all of these sort of organic relationships that exist within an institution. And I mean, I think that this gets to a broader question about like how, how relationships exist, um, you know, 
And the opposite of that is not just who are friends, but where are there like really corroded situations as well? Like mm -hmm. who can't, who can't work together anymore? Um, and I think those things are important to figure out, to understand sort of how, um, I think from a political standpoint, there's a lot to that about how um, situations become on both sides of things about how situations get very um, complicated in a way that you cannot anticipate. Yeah. Whether it's because of sort of a back channel of information through friendship or whether it is a lack of ability to engage in something because of one of these sort of like uh, corroded relationships. Oftentimes, you know, politics in, in this conversation is really about, you know, it's about trying to understand sort of how practice actually exists on the campus and why that's existing that way. And some of that comes down to like, again, how these relationships function, because that is when, you know, we oftentimes enter into these spaces with like, here's our rational brain, sort of, you know, a, a power that you have when you're in a new place or I think if you're really willing to take a step back in the place that you're at and reevaluate is I'm thinking about this as sort of like, this is how I understand it to work. And I think oftentimes the sort of thing that makes that the like undercurrent that sort of knocks that foundation of like, Oh, this should logically work this way is oftentimes, you know, based on that situation. I think another thing to look at is change management which can be all of these things are related, um, but it's who is working for change, who is capable of affecting change and who is actively, um, I would say sort of working for same, you know, for tradition, sameness, um, that sort that of stuff. That, yep. Yeah, that's an interesting, that's an interesting one to really keep an eye on, I think because it does help you understand. It's another way of trying to understand influence, but it's also another way of understanding like how people's motivations, you know, sort of exist. All of this is trying to sort of make sense of this complex ecosystem that is made up of thousands of different people and their motivations and needs. Um, so, I mean, I think that those are, um, I think that those are things, I think a thing that people struggle with is um, like, uh, systems that exist within an institution and sort of like how things actually happen. Um, you know, sometimes folks refer to, to folks who are managing more like, um, you know, uh, like long-term processes, whether it's like HR stuff, financial stuff. Um, they have these like big administrative jobs. I think people, people oftentimes don't understand the nature of that work and it gets referred to as like button pressing. And there's actually a lot that I think that goes into that. Now, it doesn't mean that there aren't valid complaints about things getting slowed up and whole, you know, delays in the process. Um, but I think some of that is like understanding what are the priorities of the folks who are doing that work in order to then better understand how to navigate, you know, how to navigate the situation. Because those sort of like gatekeeper roles do hold tremendous influence on college campuses. And to sort of throw your hands up and get frustrated with the folks who are doing that work is... Um, you know, everybody's welcome to do that, but that is not going to be the most effective way to operate. Um, so I, yeah, those are, those are sort of the things that I think about in terms of like, how are we stepping into like this first kind of diagnostic look at things? Um, it's not yeah. exhaustive, but those are, those are some things that come to mind. 
No, it's a great list. I really appreciate your thoughts about like sort of who's driving change. And I think the the thing to pay attention to there is who is doing that inside and outside of like positions of authority, right? Like, of course, there's going to be levels of like change and, and progress, hopefully um, made that is coming from like an authoritative standpoint. But what are, who are the people um, that are able to push things forward, maybe without sitting in a position of authority and, and what, and paying attention not only to the fact that they're doing that, but how are they doing that and, and what is working, what like, you know, what what styles of communication are they using? What, um, like, how are they, who are they leaning on? Who are their relationships with? Because um, I think sometimes I've probably said this before, but it's always on my mind that I think we often like jump to the top of like, we need this person to, to do this thing versus recognizing that we can have an impact from from other spaces too. So I think that's, that driving change piece and paying attention to that is super important. So Miles, what, um, kind of thinking about like, I guess, structures of this, what, what structures would you use the word diagnose, which I really liked as you're diagnosing sort of the, the political environment or climate, what structures would you focus on in higher education institutes institutions to get that initial understanding or to do that initial diagnosis? Well, I mean, oftentimes the most concrete statement about priorities comes from money and i mean that's a that's a pretty common refrain right you want to know what people care about follow the money i don't absolutely yeah that may be a fairly exact quote from someone so i apologize if i'm not attributing that correctly but but that is oftentimes and and we don't you know like depending on which seat you're in you may not get a you know you may not be able to get sort of the the full range of perspective in terms of that but you don't necessarily have to have the excel sheet in front of you to understand where and how different spaces are being prioritized. And so mm -hmm. if you want to understand what the institution, the division, the department, whichever level you're looking at it from, if you want to understand what matters and where influence exists, the most concrete way to do that is to, you know, is to figure out which department is a lot bigger than it is on other campuses? Which department is a lot smaller than it is on other campuses? Um, which department is like stretching outside of what you would think that they would typically do? Um, because those folks are probably people with influence if they are able to sort of stretch in that way. Um, I think another really interesting structure to look at is communication channels. So, and that is more about like how you're strategizing within your own way of doing things. There are, there are certain spaces where it is necessary to be able to operate within a different communication uh, mm -hmm. space. Uh, coming to JMU, just to use a specific example, it became clear to me and, and we had, when I was at Clemson, we had teams that was like a, a system that existed, but it was not the system of record. It was something that sort of got tacked on early COVID and some people migrated to it and some people like myself did not. I was like literally, you know, not in teams at all. We had a separate storage you know, mechanism. I think some of this is, this is a side conversation, but it's sort of the legacy of like who grew up in some messaging a lot. Um, mm -hmm. and, and we didn't have the internet at my house until I was in 12th grade. So um, I was not actively on AIM. So I think I'm just not as uh, much of a chatter, but. Um, at some point I'd love to know your AIM screen name, but we'll come back to that. That's what I'm saying. I didn't have one. Ever, uh, you never then got one later in, like in the 12th grade when you got the internet? I don't think so. Gosh, you really missed out. 
Yeah, well, there's plenty of things embarrassing about me in the present and past. So, um, but anyway, I just, I think that that is a really interesting piece. I think that, you know, that was a space that I needed to get in in order to be able to keep up with, uh, in order to keep up with, and it, and it functionally is the system of record here, you know, like our storage, our like online storage is in that space. And so um, it, it was not sort of an option, but also being able to maintain those conversations are there times where you need to be more active in that space? We were running a really big project this spring and I, I typically don't have notifications on my phone and added Teams notifications just because I knew that that's how the communication channel was gonna work. Oftentimes I think that people who have, and this is just a broad generalization, but I think that people who have more other people's phone numbers tend to be more effective. And that's, you know, you think about communication channels. I think that that is like a key piece of that picture. The people who have other people's numbers to call in a crisis or to text, you know, casually. Um, and, you know, some of that isn't going to be effective because if you're not being authentic and that gets to this piece, if you don't, you know, like actually care about these people, you're just like leaning on them in challenging situations. It's not going to be effective. Having someone's cell phone number is more symbolic of like the kind of connections that they've made on campus. But regardless, it is better if you have that in terms of your like real time problem solving, but also not just real-time problem solving, also like how you're able to navigate in space and that sort of stuff. Um, and then the other thing that I think you can look at, and this is somewhat related to both of those things, but like it's, you know, particularly when you're looking, this can be departmental, this can be divisional, this can be university-wide, but what does an org chart say about priorities? And an org chart is again, very much related to money, but you know, Jamie, you just made a very, very intentional choice to add a vice president for diversity, equity, and inclusion. To me, you know, putting that seat in, in the cabinet and adding another vice president, and we do not have here a lot of vice presidents. Being a vice president at JMU is a very big deal, and having another seat in that space was a pretty clear indication from the university that this is an elevated priority. Um, and so I think that that is related, particularly in that point, to understanding whose voices matter, which I think is a key structural question um, to be asking. Um, you know, I think you can look at like departmental shapes, how are, how are those adjusted? Um, and then I think another one that you can look at in terms of student affairs, just to try to get a sense of it, is what's included in student affairs and what is not? Are there things that are not in student affairs at this institution that you would think would be? And, this, and these are things that you can do in the interview process, or does there, is there a lot in student affairs that you wouldn't think would be in student affairs? Yeah. That could, that may or may not be an indication of the location of student affairs within the institution um, in terms of the like expansiveness of the services that are coming out of the space. Um, generally speaking, I think the smaller the division in terms of what you would think would be in there, the less influence that the division has. That's, mm -hmm. not, like a, that's not like a one for one, of course. Um, but yeah, I think generally speaking, that's, that's some of the stuff that, that you would look at in terms of structure. Well, I think too, included in like sort of what's in the org chart in terms of what's included in student affairs, it's also like, how are those things managed? Like, are they, are a bunch of departments just kind of like dumped under a person who does not have expertise to supervise and manage those areas? Or is it, you know, that they are sort of, they have prepared people or hired in people who are experts and prepared to appropriately support and, and manage those areas. Um, so I think sometimes you can have, you know, sometimes you can have a smaller division of student affairs, but you've got like real expertise at every sort of level along the way. And I think that says, that says a lot too. 
Um, the other thing that came to mind for me as you were talking about staffing and um, organization charts is, is looking um, at specific departments and sort of how deep their organization chart is. Um, and I say that because I think that typically a more um, a deeper uh, organization chart sometimes reflects advancement, right? We've created positions to um, you know, promote someone from a program coordinator to an assistant director to an associate director because we've wanted to keep those people and we've created an org chart that, that supports that. Um, I think sometimes like a flatter um, org chart can reflect that, you know, there's not room for advancement and often that people are okay with sort of people floating in and out of a, of a system. Um, and usually I think when people have been advanced, they, um, they are valued for some reason or another, right? They, they, they want them to stay. And that usually will reflect some sort of political power because of um, an intentional choice to keep them and retain them and because of their longevity at the institution. So I think that's something that um, often is overlooked, but looking at sort of what an or a department in particular's um, org chart looks like. Well, and even sometimes the shape of the org chart is interesting to me in terms of what that symbolizes about the department. I was looking at a department recently um, with a pretty interesting shape that I read as being like the whole department is about the director. Like that's how I read the org chart because um, it was a it was a like a different kind of shape, and I just was like, hmm, this is this is an interesting message in terms of like how this is you know the person who built this is conceptualizing it like this specific way. And maybe it was done that, you know, to seem more decentralized, that totally could have been the case. I'm not sure. But. Yeah. Yeah. I had two other quick, like just thoughts as we were talking. One um, is thinking about, I loved your point about, you know, what's included in student affairs and what that says about student affairs is um, like power at an institution or influence in an institution. I, I think too, and I, I imagine we're going to talk about this later on as we think about like external stakeholders and some of that, but I think um, thinking about the ways that we make statements or communicate statements from the university and who, who is sending those statements, who is, who is allowed to make statements, who is not allowed to make statements, how are they communicated? Um, are, you know, I, we see sometimes like co-authored statements, right? Like two, maybe two vice presidents are sending something together, um, you know, but but who is sending those messages? How are they communicated? I think is, is something to really pay attention to, um, particularly in like crisis. Um, and then the other thing I, I wanted, I think would be remiss in, in leaving out is that I think all of this has gotten a lot harder in a, in a COVID world. Um, I think so much of what you're able to um, see and to read about a political environment um, and to like, you know, some of the things that's just like reading the room and like reading between the lines, we've lost some of that in a virtual space. Um, and so I, I think we're all going to have to be thinking about ways to, to like get back into that, that um, sort of mindset as we come hopefully out fully of a pandemic and are in spaces together again, um, thinking about how we like rehone those skills of reading the room. And then also all of us finding strategies for how we can do that even in a virtual space. So we always wanna wrap these sessions with um, a resource to share. And um, I'm actually gonna give kind of a non-traditional one. Um, and I want to give a shout out to Dr. Michelle Botcher, who Miles and I have both had the privilege of working with here at Clemson um, in our doctoral studies. Um, but I took a class with Michelle recently, and she 
um, something I love about the way she teaches her classes is she like finds unique resources that don't always mean like I have to sit down and read a textbook because sometimes I just can't um, or don't have the energy to. Um, and so she has taken to at least in two classes I've had with her of giving us like um, sort of a, funny enough, a pop culture thing to look at or something a little bit more relevant to look at. And she suggested for us in our governance class this semester, this summer, um, to watch the chair. And there is, that's on Netflix. If you have not seen it, I feel like I'm saying that as someone who, as Miles pointed out, is not super with all the stuff. Um, so I'm saying this and everyone listening is like, yeah, okay, we've already seen the chair, but if you haven't watched the chair, would strongly recommend it. I think there is so many good little nuggets in there about sort of how political power, um, exists on a college campus. And I think sometimes to be able to look at it from like with a little bit of like distance and also like a little bit of humor and, and lightness um, is helpful and also um, can really help you to think about things differently. So Miles, what you got? Um, I have not watched the chair, so I appreciate that recommendation. Um, and I'm also happy to hear that you know what Netflix is, so that's good. Um, <laughs> I uh, am recommending a, uh, a book, um, one of those textbooks you referenced, called, uh, it's by Hendrickson et al. It's called Academic Leadership and Governance of Higher Education. Um, I don't know that you would necessarily want to, uh, you know, I mean, you may want to read this casually, but I do think it helps understand, you know, like institutional politics live outside of student affairs. I think sometimes we think that the world ends with the vice president and that is obviously not the case. Um, and I think that this helps understand, you know, motivations that exist in different spaces, what are processes going on. Um, you know, I think a, a huge thing to understand about the way that we engage with faculty is, you know, like how is service actually incentivized on, for faculty? And is it actually a big part of how they're evaluated? And if, if the answer is no, then that may be a really good reason why you're struggling to get faculty engagement. So, um, yeah. So anyway, it's a it's a it's a good book. Um, all right. With that, well, thanks for everybody uh, for joining us for to practice, which is presented by SACSA. You can get more information about SACSA, the Southern Association for College Student Affairs, on the various social media outlets, including Facebook.com backslash SACSA fan page, um, which, despite my disparaging of Facebook earlier, is a great resource. Um, on Twitter at SACSA tweets, on Instagram SACSA grams. And we'd also highly recommend signing up for the SACS Alert, which is a great information, which is great information on the work of SACSA and its members. Uh, SACSA is still, as of recording, and I hope this will get out before then, is still accepting uh, program proposals over the next couple of days. Uh, so please uh, consider that and uh, join us in Birmingham in November. Kate, anything you want to add? No, but thanks to everyone for listening. And I'm really excited about this new season. So it feels good to be back recording. Looking forward to diving into this a little bit more. All right. Thanks, everybody.